Hello and welcome to the Earthen Bunker podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by myself, myself, Intel RNC, Defense Geek, Alf, Kyle Glenn, and Earthen Technical. That that's that's all we're gonna do for the intro, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, on this week, we're gonna hit on a few things: um, Ethiopia, Iraq, of course, because you know we have a left here, and that's uh, obviously something that we're gonna have to hit on. <laughs> um, and I think we're there's also some Carrier Strike Group Twenty One news. Um, and was there anything else that I'm missing? Uh, Ukraine, 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 and Belarus and Russia. I guess that that entire uh, sort of uh, area is becoming a bit uh, more confrontational. I guess in the past few weeks, more so than we've seen uh, at least in the past year. So I think we should uh, get on it. Indeed, and I think you wanted to uh, start off discussing um, the events of last night and sort of the last week or so in Iraq. Yeah, um, so uh, at least for the last few weeks, we've seen um, a lot more agitation among the Iranian-backed militias, the PMUs, um, who have been getting really angry at the election of uh, Matik al-Siddur, um, sorry, I'm terrible at pronouncing names like that. That's I'll, I'll probably leave that to a left in the near future. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, you got me on that one. Um, but, but after he was elected on a very extreme um, sort of anti-militia platform or anti-Iranian-backed militia platform, um, the Iranian-backed militias got very angry, and then it sort of boiled over in the last few days as they've been openly protest or people that, that that back them have been openly protesting um and then last night we saw an explosive uh uav attack on the um, iraqi prime minister's residence uh news sort of is wavering between whether or not he was hurt or not but at this point we do know um the residence was attacked um he made an announcement a few hours later saying that he was okay um and now I think that was the thing. Like, he, was it this morning? He had like the he made a video. He had like a, he was arm was bandaged. I remember. Yeah, that correctly. Was a, there was a video this morning. It was his left wrist, if I remember correctly, and apparently, uh, according to my intel, three of his bodyguards were injured as well. So yeah, the the pictures were fairly clear that the damage was considerable to the residents. Um, I believe pretty much anyone in the residence would have been at least somewhat injured or minorly injured yeah uh as i mentioned before three of his bodyguards were lightly injured uh, actually lightly to moderately but no one was crit- critically injured so it's fine as well but uh actually i think this uh you know this was about sending the message uh i think the receiver's end was wrong because uh muhtad sadr the uh, the the thing that uh, Arabs call Tayar Sadri, that guy won the elections. There was there was no interference uh, by the Iraqi government. There were uh, like observation groups who were monitoring and watching the elections. But you know the Iranian militias uh, were not happy, especially the Fatah party, which is. Uh, actually uh, backed by the PMU or what they call the Tashit Shabi. So uh, I think they sent the wrong message. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, from the uh, projectile that we saw on the rooftop of the building of uh, Mustafa Kazimi or the Iraqi uh, prime minister's rooftop, it was quite similar to what uh, was launched at the green zone of Baghdad on July 5th, if I remember correctly. So this, uh, I, I mean, uh, despite the condemnation by Qatar Hezbollah, which is also backed by Iran, I think it was something quite identical to what was done before. The projectile, the uh, type of the attack, the style, the time, most of them were uh, quite similar to what happened before on July. Yeah, and it sort of does match the general attack profile that we've seen from groups like this. I mean, you're, you're pretty standard, you know, suicide drone-based uh, attack. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't think this is anything exactly new apart from, you know, the escalation. And I know a lot of people have been saying whether or not, you know, 
Iran is involved, as in, you know, uh, the group's got direct okays or permission from Tehran to commit this attack. Right now, from what I've seen, there's no indication um, that Iran knew beforehand that this was going to happen. But um, I, I guess this is something we'll have to see moving into the future. Yeah, I'm not uh, going to jump to a conclusion, but, you know, uh, there were some, um, I'll call it riots, but you can't call it protests, against the final results of the elections. Most of them were backed by uh, Hashid Shabi and Iran-backed groups, because, uh, you know, no one else was uh, this much uh, upset about the election results. And right after that... Uh, uh, Abu uh, Abu Ali Askari, the spokesperson of Qatar Hezbollah, uh, also said that people might, uh, some some groups may launch uh, rockets towards the green zone and blame us on that. I think that was kind of a disclaimer for them. Uh, also, I believe that it was done by Iran-backed militia uh, groups, including the Assad Al Al uh, and the Hashid Shabi, but you know, uh, they won't take some, uh, they, they won't claim this responsibility because uh, this is not a, a normal attack on the green zone or the Erbil airport. This one was big, uh, targeting a prime minister of a country which has uh, US allies inside it, which uh, hosts coalition forces. Uh, this was something pretty much bigger than that, so of course. I believe that uh, they they won it, and uh, you know uh, they have, they had plans to condemn these attacks. Three uh, explosive laden UAVs were launched toward the uh, Kardemir uh, residence in Baghdad, and two of them were downed. One, well, was successful. It wasn't a disaster. Yeah, and I think at some point we sort of have to think. Obviously, they intended to kill the prime minister of Iraq. I mean, what, you know, I mean, obviously, they may try again. But what happens if they had been successful in their attack? I mean, did they sort of have a, a, a step two to, to sort of what they were trying to do? Or, or was this sort of just random and sort of see what the fallout is? Uh, I'm not pretty sure about this one because uh, we don't really know the real intention about it uh, but uh, you know uh, Abu Ali Askari the spokes of Qatar uh, said uh, we, uh, we uh, if someone wanted to kill that guy to add Mustafa Kazemi the Iraqi Prime Minister there were uh, cheaper ways and also uh, uh, more assuring ways to get rid of this guy but you know his uh, statement was quite it wasn't something uh, serious because he called Iraqi Prime Minister a Facebook character. He was talking about that this guy is just uh, spending his time on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but, you know, uh, if uh, uh, Iran-backed militias or whoever conducted those attacks uh, were successful, uh, nothing would ever change. Uh, I mean, right now, there is no Majlis Nawab, something like a parliament. Uh, but uh, the election results are quite final. Uh, it's almost 100% final. So uh, I doubt if anything would change in that matter. But if they wanted to send a message, well, I believe it wasn't a successful message because uh, nothing would change except I, I, I personally believe that there will, there will be some arrests uh, because of these, uh, all of these, you know, uh, uh, this is uh, not something that, that uh, any government would just uh, let it go. I'm pretty sure that uh, you, if you are following the security media cell of uh, Iraq, they are quite uh, serious about arresting the groups of people who were behind uh, the last night attack. Yeah, that's, 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 oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just gonna say it seems to me like it's kind of maybe halfway between a serious attempt and you know a warning. You know, like if it was just like a, a flat out warning, you know, maybe they would have just lobbed some waters or a rocket towards his residence, or you know, just at the green zone or whatever. 
you know, kind of launching free drones um, and potentially, you know, wounding a prime minister, you know, not seriously. It seems, you know, even even if it, the intent wasn't to kill him, it, you know, it, it it very easily could have, you know, if things went right or wrong, depending on how you you know you view it from their their goal. So, you know, it it seems like you know there was no. Like I said, like I, I can't remember you said it. There was no kind of phase two. There was no kind of plan for what happened if they succeeded. You know, if that drone uh, had hmm. managed to kill him, there was you know everyone, it didn't seem like anyone knew what would happen after that. Yeah, I'll go fifty percent uh, with agreeing this one what Carl just said. But you know, uh, one of the projectiles didn't explode, just like the most of the Iranian uh, projectiles. So uh, it could be a could be an error. That happened because uh, three were, were launched, three explosive laden uh, drones were shot, uh, were launched, and two of them were shot down. So, uh, also, uh, we most of the people who live in Iraq, uh, Iraq, they they were aware of that. The uh, what they what the Iranian people call sepah bots or IRGC Quds uh, has a great influence on the Iraqi militias, especially the Shia ones. Uh, I believe that if it was done, which I personally believe it was done by the uh, Shia militias, it was ordered by the IRGC Quds officials and possibly seniors, someone like uh, uh, Ismail Khani, who's the commander of the IRGC Quds. Uh, I I don't really know what was their own, their real intention, but I think they wanted to deliver a message, and I still believe that it was delivered uh, to the wrong person. Because uh, Muqtada Sadr has its own has his own army. Uh, it's called the uh, Zariyah Salams, and they are quite powerful. They they were there before Hashad Shabi. They were there uh, since two thousand six. They they uh, changed their name. A few times, but they are still the same thing. Sadr has its has his own uh, f- uh, followers. They are pretty much loyal ones, not the pa- not like the paid ones, uh, like uh, you know Kitab Hezbollah or uh, let's say Asab Ahl Al Haq. Uh, those people are really religiously and uh, in any uh, matter they just follow. Because he's a cleric, so if he issues a fatwa, which is a uh, religious order, they will follow him blindly. Uh, so I think if if Muqtada wants to interfere with in uh, or uh, sorry intervene in this uh, situation, he would and he will start from Najaf, because uh, that's where he has most of the followers and uh, let's call most of the militias. Yeah, so you're sort of looking at, of course, it's rock. So there are a number of different parties, each sort of vying for control at this point. Uh, yeah, true that. Uh, there are areas, different areas. Uh, you know, the uh, Shia areas are mostly controlled by the Iran-backed groups. And uh, that actually happened since they, they were, uh, quote-unquote, fighting the ISIS. And they expanded their territories through that. They, they even captured the uh, camp uh, Farah, uh, which was under control of uh, Mech, the Jahidin Kalk, which was an Iranian group. They were opposing the Iranian regime and they, they were fighting side, uh, like, uh, sh- side by side with, uh, against the Iranian regime during the eight years' war of Iran and Iraq. But uh, they are they are still expanding the uh, territories through the uh, so-called uh, anti-ISIS operations. So I don't think there would be any area which is uh, immune from Iranian-backed militias. Maybe the Kurdistan region, like Erbil, uh, some parts of the northern Iraq, but the rest of the areas are. Uh, quite under control of Iranian militias, including Karbala, Najaf, some parts of Baghdad, uh, except some eastern parts of Baghdad, uh, Basra, uh, and some parts of Al-Ambar, not all of the Al-Ambar. Which is interesting because 
going into at least this week, it seemed like the Iraqi government was prepared to start winding down uh, uh, those anti-ISIS operations and sort of, you know, say that the military operation against ISIS had more or less come to an end. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that was some kind of, uh, it was kind of a message to the uh, PMU, PMF, or Hashid Shabi. Mm. Uh, there were some rumors about uh, getting rid of the Hashid Shabi because right now there's not much of ISIS activities like uh, it was uh, on 2014 and 2015. Uh, but I'm pretty sure uh, they won't let go this easy, especially they have uh, dozens of thousands of militias in Iraq. Most of them are armed. Many of them, many of those bases have access to Iranian uh, ballistic missiles, including uh, medium-range ones and short-range ones. So uh, I don't think that would be a simple operation if they want to get rid of the uh, Hashid Shabi or PMF. Yeah, so I mean, at this point, we can basically say that there's a certain level of just inherent tension that we're going to see. And it's it's probably going to keep building until, I guess, something happens. Yeah, I think that something would be... Uh, there are two options, if you ask me. Uh, one is changing the prime minister legally after changing the Majlis Nawab. I mean, the new Majlis Nawab, the parliament, uh, after finalizing the election results. Uh, and the second one would be something like a civil war. Uh, some Shia groups against each other, which I can foresee it right now because uh, these other ones are, uh, you know, they are, they are there were some movements of uh, rockets and what's, uh, what was reported to me as missiles, uh, short-range ballistic missiles. I have no idea of where Saraya Saddam obtained those missiles, but Apparently, they are also on the uh, on some kind of movements, and they're preparing for something which I have no idea of what they're uh, currently up to. But if this uh, actually uh, goes uh, harder than whatever it is right now, uh, we'll see something like a civil war in some Shia areas, in some Shia cities like uh, Najaf, especially in Najaf, because there are two. Uh, actually, the Najaf is quite divided into powers, the Iranian-backed Shias and the Sadri ones. And Sadr uh, doesn't like, you know, he doesn't uh, just say yes, sir, to Iran. He had uh, several trips to Iran. He talked to Khamenei, he ta but he also had trips to Saudi Arabia. So this guy... Uh, I think he uh, would prefer to lean towards the real power instead of uh, just getting paid by some party or some country. At this moment, I believe that if something uh, uh, happens, it would be in Najaf, Karbala, uh, Basra, and also Baghdad. So uh, and, uh, it's definitely it's something that's quite predictable if they start... Uh, Fighting in Baghdad, the green zone won't be a safe zone for pretty much no one because Americans are there, many embassies are there. And I think uh, it would be a mess because Americans would, uh, I'm not pretty much sure about the Americans, but Americans might uh, intervene in this thing, especially if they get uh, attacked, seriously attacked by Iranian militias. And there would be some arrests. I'm pretty sure about this one. Yeah, that's sort of what I was about to ask you is sort of where do the Americans fit into this in this situation? Because obviously, you know, there's somewhat of a presence. We see rocket attacks against American installations on a somewhat frequent basis at this point. Um, but, you know, if American forces are attacked, you know, if you know, American interests in the Iraqi government are attacked, you know, how would America respond? And I don't, I don't think any of us know that answer at this point. Yeah, we saw that before. Uh, some, uh, as you mentioned, American interests were attacked and uh, the American army and CENTCOM uh, responded to that attacks, to those attacks through targeting Iranian bases, Iranian militia's bases 
in Al Qaeda, which is near the near Syria and Iraqi borders. So uh, I think as long as Americans are fine and there are no American casualty or fatalities, I think it remain Americans will just stay neutral because uh, they will get uh, into some serious troubles if they just uh, start arresting or attacking uh, Ira- Iraqi militias inside the Iraqi soil, like at Baghdad, uh, there would be some serious consequences for them, unless they want to wipe out uh, whoever is attacking them. Just partial attacks, I think it just makes the situation worse and worse. Yeah, and and again, some groups, of course, might want to see some sort of escalation happen and may go out of their way to attack U.S. forces um, in order to sort of draw the U.S. US into, I guess, what would be seen as a a decisive confrontation and sort of a chance to kick the U.S. back? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, you all heard about the rumors and some statements, some of them were official, that U.S. will withdraw through the end of this year or next year or something like that. But I think uh, the Americans won't just leave Iraq. I'm not talking about the, the, uh, I don't know, what they say about the oil and uh, interest and stuff like that. But, you know, if the ISIS thing, which happened in 2014, starts again, uh, you know, controlling it and uh, extinguishing it, it takes eons, maybe decades, because... ISIS is an ideology, and you can't just kill two people and hope that they will uh, stop. So, if Americans withdraw, uh, the ISIS possibly, many people say that, and I have the same idea, the ISIS will rise again. Uh, as, as we are seeing it right now, there are some, and there were some attacks in Diyala, province of Iraq, several peoples, like dozens were killed. If they let it go, this thing will burn many parts of the Middle East. I'm talking about the Iraq, I'm talking about the Syria. And if uh, they go and uh, have an, uh, have some adva- advancements in the Middle East, they'll go towards the West, maybe Jordan, because they are there. There were some ISIS activities in Raqqa, in, in, in southern Syria, which is pretty much close to the Jordanian borders. So if they... Uh, withdraw is not just about the interests it would be about the ISIS and I think they won't let it go easily unless they make sure that uh, the Iraqi government is in control and is capable of uh, confronting the ISIS forces yeah that's the thing I think there's the belief within the US sort of foreign policy apparatus that Iraq is sort of one of those countries with a really good chance of actually becoming self-governing and, you know, a very good potential to become self-governing and sort of a a self-sustaining democracy. And, you know, there's this belief that ISIS, you know, can't survive as long as Iraq is actually functional. And Syria, I guess it's further off from seeing whatever becomes of a functional Syrian state. But there, there sort of, I guess, is this belief that with a functional Iraq, ISIS will be sort of impossible to operate. Uh, yes, so have I heard. But, uh, you know, uh, countries like Syria and Iraq and many uh, parts of Saudi Arabia, I'm talking about the Western sites, um, the ISIS has cells because many of the areas are not uh, well populated. They just start building their cells up. And as long as those countries exist and they... Uh, don't um, observe the situation closely, there's a big chance of, uh, you know, growing ISIS inside those countries. I'm I'm specifically talking about Syria and Iraq. And, uh, you know, what is more concerning is the southern Syria, which is southeastern Syria, which has some borders with Jordan. Uh, If that happens, I, I... really doubt if uh, they could stop it from advancing. Yeah, and I, I think that's where the current situation sort of stands at this point is, you know, ISIS, as long as they have room to operate under, you know, 
weakened states and states that don't really have a monopoly of violence, well, they'll continue to operate. Yeah, I think uh, that could be the re- main reason that Americans uh, allowed Kurds and Kurdish people to have their own state in uh, northern and north- northeastern Iraq, because uh, they were quite serious about confronting ISIS. And, uh, you know, the Peshmerga or Peshmerga uh, forces were uh, the front line of fighting ISIS on the Muslim war. So, uh, yeah, the, your idea about uh, Iraq being a democratic state or maybe some kind of federal state, uh, I think it would be quite possible if the United States uh, wants them to uh, uh, rule a country like that because uh, as far as i know uh, the american government the current one and the previous ones uh, were counting on kurds they're pretty much good fighters uh, they won't back up because uh, if they do uh, you know they'll lose everything especially as isis uh, recognizes them as uh, so they'll be wiped out of the earth. That's why they fight pretty much serious against them. So uh, I think the Kurdish state at, at this moment, the Kurdish uh, region, let's call it region, uh, they are one of these things that I think uh, the United States is counting on in this region, in some parts of uh, Syria, including Hasekia, and also in uh, northern and northeastern Iraq. Yeah, and certainly, I guess, as as we sort of come to the end of this, I guess it's uh, <laughs> left proving that uh, a lot of us don't exactly know everything about the situation. I, I think that's something that we can all definitely at least be sure about, um, and that the situation has uh, at least a lot of people in a lot of different countries who have consummately different views on how they want the future of Iraq and Syria as well um, to be. What I've heard about the uh, current situation in Iraq, especially in Baghdad, uh, or Baghdad, is that there were some arrest warrants uh, issued by the Iraqi government and some judges uh, in Baghdad uh, to arrest some militias and starting to interrogate them before forming the new and the next government and before uh, the, new, the next prime minister uh, swears so I think there might be some more uh, you know some maybe some clashes uh, inside Baghdad and pos- maybe I'm not pretty sure but I'm sure about the Baghdad I'm not sure about the uh, Najaf but uh, this will intensify for a couple of days at least uh, till they settle something I'm quite certain as far as I was informed that uh, election results won't change at all. Sadr will, will still be on top, and he will have some uh, some high mandates in the parliament and the, in the Majlis Nawab. So uh, the government will be the one that Muqtada Sadr and his ally uh, and his allies decide. And of course, Iranian and. Iranian government regime and the militias won't be happy about it. So I personally expect some uh, clashes inside Baghdad at this moment. Yeah, and well, I, I think the main thing is is just waiting to see what happens over the next week. As I, maybe some groups were sort of surprised at the speed at which things escalated, because I really haven't seen many forces within Baghdad yet that, or at least forces that have moved in heavy equipment like we saw um, I, both earlier this year and last year, um, whereas it seems that the Iraqi government has moved in heavy equipment at least starting today. So that's that's definitely something that gives the Iraqi government an advantage at the moment. Yeah, I think we would see some indications uh, if there is an escalation, uh, it would be possibly some evacuations from the green zone towards the Israel, towards the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Because uh, whenever something goes uh, some kind of serious, 
many of the unnecessary uh, employees and personnel of the U.S. Embassy will be evacuated to Erbil uh, Consulate. So uh, I think that would be an indication. So we gotta watch the flights from Baghdad Airport uh, a little bit more and uh, closer. True. I mean, it also hasn't. Been, it wouldn't be the first time the U.S. was a bit behind the intelligence curve on uh, seeing things happen. Yeah, we saw it on Sudan like a week ago. They they warned the Sudanese government, but no. I mean, it's not the it's not the first time it's happened in Baghdad. Yes, certainly, that is also true. And I think at this point, I, I John, if you're still awake, <laughs> we can <laughs> we can probably uh, move on to another uh, place where we're seeing sort of this intergovernmental strife in um, uh, Belarus and Poland right now. I, yeah. I I know you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, so um, obviously earlier this year we had uh, a number of issues that were raised with uh, Belarus. Um, we famously had the airliner that was diverted to Belarus um, where a couple of the passengers were then arrested by uh, Belarus's security forces. Um, we're very well aware that uh, Russia has been getting very, very cosy with Belarus's government recently, um, particularly as uh, President Lukashenko um, has sort of turned around and sort of taken the the stance that NATO is eyeing him up for an invasion and, and so on and so forth. Um, what we've seen in the last couple of days that um, has been somewhat alarming, I think it's fair to say, is that uh, Belarus's military has uh, been making some appearances on the border with Poland. Um, they've reportedly been using... Um, some sort of electronic uh, warfare kit to jam Polish troops' communications on the border. Um, there's also been footage uh, circulating of uh, Polish troops having rocks and various other items thrown at them by. There was um, there was a flare gun. Was there was also an incident of a flare gun attempt. They attempted to discharge a flare gun towards the Polish troops, but it yeah. didn't fire. Yeah, um, all of which you know is is concerning and and very dangerous behavior really um had the flare gun gone off and, and and troops been injured um you know poland is fairly well known for not just sort of sitting around and, and issuing statements um i think it's fair to say throughout polish history they've very much been up for a fight um key examples of that obviously being the second world war uh, and sort of the early yeah. days of the Soviet Union as well. Um, so thankfully that hasn't escalated much further at the moment. Um, but earlier this evening we saw footage of uh, women and children being forced through the fence from the Belarusian side um, into Polish territory and then the uh, Belarusian troops standing and blocking them from returning into the country. Um, now, we're not entirely sure what the situation is with that and whether these are um, women and children who have been uh, are being thrown out of Belarus or whether Be uh, Belarus is trying to force some sort of uh, crisis onto Poland. Um, I think, obviously, Poland has acted very, very carefully, very cautiously here. Um, they haven't immediately sort of tried to fight with the Belarusian troops on the border over this matter. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see in the coming days and weeks um, exactly how this situation develops and, and, and what uh, Poland has to say about it. Because it's fair to say that um, their politicians have not really made any statements about what's going on at the border so far. Um, I think there was a, a short statement from uh, one of the defence ministers the other day simply to confirm that rocks had been thrown at Polish troops. Um, but beyond that, I don't know if we know anything further. No, I, mean, I haven't heard anything um, official. Uh, but like I said, it is very concerning. I mean, the, the kind of tensions between Belarus and Poland have been going on in, the, in recent history, at least over the last year or so. Um, kind of starting from when there was quite large anti-government protests in Belarus after the latest, we'll put in big air quotes, election, mm. which Lukashenko won with 
trying to remember what percentage of the vote 90 plus yeah percentage of the vote um and which you know he there was opposition politicians arrested and dumped into was it ukraine they just literally dropped, mm. drove them across the border and dumped them later on not to return there was you know massive crackdowns against you know lots of peaceful protests there was you know all, all sorts of stuff going on and at the same time they were um accusing poland of building up troops on the border and preparing to invade and at the same time there was all the rumors that russia might invade not invade be invited in to kind of put down protests and kind of provide security um which all kind of ties into you know lukashenko and putin's kind of almost plan for a new soviet union you know they've they kind of uh, they recently signed a new deal um to tighten cooperation across like 27 different areas wasn't it um and and there's always there's been rumors for you know a few years that they're just gonna kind of dissolve belarus and absorb it into into russia which would be absolutely insane if that happened but you know we've had what things are you know what's going on at the moment it wouldn't be massively out of the question no and um and you know in the situation on the border it's very similar to what it you know how it is in um turkey on the greek border in which you know it seems like turkish soldiers doing the same thing just kind of pushing refugees through into greece and the soldiers are clashing and having issues and it's you know it's very dangerous situation there um especially with um you know like i said like belarus kind of accusing nato and Poland and everyone have built enough bits it, it seems uh, like one wrong move away from you know, something erupting on the border between the two countries yeah and it, it has heated up as sort of you know Lukashenko inside of Belarus has seen increased domestic pressure which granted I mean has sort of fallen off as he's cracked down at a fairly extreme level especially with help from uh, Russia so I think at this point, a lot of his stuff is antagonistic um, more than sort of defensive. So it's just, you know, some of it doesn't make sense and some of it does make sense with what he's doing. But I I guess there's a certain level of stuff that we don't know internally and what he's facing. Yeah, and it's worth remembering as well that it was only a couple of months ago that Lukashenko was... um trying to tell the world and trying to convince his own people that NATO was planning to invade Belarus. Um, now, obviously, we, we know that's absolute nonsense. There's been no major uh, NATO troop movements or anything of the sort, um, which I suppose is obviously reassuring to Belarus uh, if, if they're aware that that's actually the case. Um but I would imagine that the uh, Polish government is probably feeling a little less uh, comfortable right now with the way that uh, Belarus is behaving, um, and particularly with the knowledge, as uh, as you mentioned, that they have the Russian backing um, in 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 what they're doing. I was going to say, like the kind of um, you know the kind of uh, issues or issues, just putting it lightly. But the you know the, the suffering that Poland had, obviously, you know, through World War Two and under. You know, under the Soviet Union, it's still fresh to a lot of people in Poland. Mm. It really wasn't that long ago, and I think you know them having a kind of a belligerent, maybe Russia on their border. Um, exactly, it's not going to be comforting to them in the slightest. And obviously Belarus as well, um, which you know I think kind of could lead into, unless anyone else had anything specifically about Belarus. I was gonna. I was gonna say it kind of leads nicely into Ukraine because obviously Belarus has been having issues with Ukraine. They've been accusing Ukrainian border guards of. Um, I think recently in the last. I think it was not 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 super recently, but in the last couple of weeks at least, they accused Ukrainian border guards of firing over the border and shooting a like a welcome to Belarus sign or something like that. Something really petty. Um, and obviously, you know, back in March and April, there was obviously there was a lot of military movement in Belarus near the Ukrainian border, which people were speculating at the time um, could be used as a you know a new front for Russia to kind of move troops into Ukraine if need be, if if things did um, if things did kick off again there in in the east of Ukraine. Um, and it's something that hasn't really been talked about during this kind of escalation cycle um, between Russia and Ukraine. 
but I think it is definitely something that needs to be, you know, kept an eye on, especially because, you know, Russia did mass a lot of troops on the kind of northern Ukrainian border, like kind of on the border of Belarus um, and Ukraine. Mm. Um, and it's definitely something that I haven't seen much of at the moment. It seems like any kind of tr- troop movement seems to be kind of hasn't really been able to, you know, identify or locate where it is perfectly. Um, but, you know, the, the, the front of the water seemed to be kind of heating up again as it was back at the, you know, back in the first kind of quarter of the year. So it's definitely uh, another region or another border Ukraine has to keep one eye on, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I think um, Technical will probably put the uh, the satellite imagery on, on the YouTube version of this podcast um, episode. But we, we've seen in the last couple of days um, from uh, Maxar uh, satellite imagery of a large quantity of armoured personnel carriers and various other Russian military vehicles that have been moved to sort of rendezvous points close to the Ukrainian border. I don't know if you wanted to um, sort of go into any more detail on that. Uh, yeah, um, so I've, I've talked with some people who have sort of tried to contextualize how or what is happening with those troop movements. At this point, the numbers aren't high enough to really indicate an actual buildup of forces. What most people have seen is they are sort of um, uh, rotating troops in and out and reinforcing previously under strength um, divisions in the area um sort of uh, uh in um in opposition to what happened in spring of la- of this year um this is m- more administrative than anything and and that's what it it seems to be at the moment it, it may be something else but that is sort of what people have tried to contextualize this as so the, the, you know there, there's definitely been um like I said, the kind of standard TikTok videos, Twitter videos of, of Russian troop movement, but like like I always said, is it's not um it's not a massive amount compared to what we've seen back in March or and April, which was kind of almost two or three times daily new videos of, of Russian troop movement, which was absolutely huge. But what the concerning thing is, I think, this time around is um whereas back in like March and April, the kind of the level of fighting did pick up. Um it wasn't significantly higher than you know previous years of like the same kind of time. It was just a kind of almost like another kind of um, like spring fall, I guess, in terms of you know the, the the snow was melting. People were you know starting to think about you know just antagonizing the other side a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know this time like through October, um, when I was looking through the uh, OSCE reports of you know troop movement, you know I was just looking at. Uh, the amount of Ukrainian equipment that was being spotted in train stations close to the front line, um, and you know the the, the amount b- between October this year and October last year, it was significantly higher. Um, I haven't got my tweet up when I posted about it, but I think like uh, November uh, or October, sorry, 2020, they spotted. I think it might have been 12 or 13 pieces of uh, you know Ukrainian armor in train stations, um, and this year it was uh, like 80 plus, 90 plus. So it was significantly higher. Uh, so it, it definitely, and on top of, you know, the, the amount of ceasefires kind of picking up, ceasefire violations, sorry, picking up, it definitely seems that this is more concerning than the, the recent escalation back in March and April. Yeah, and, and again, it's 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 hard to contextualize. Um, I probably should have said that uh, as we sort of see action take place and and ceasefire violations continue to increase you sort of have to determine whether or not it's directly backed by the russians or or whether or not it's you know sort of organic within the uh, separatist movements yeah and and what was interesting about this one there seems to be more footage of um ukrainian trains of like ukrainian equipment moving to the front whereas before there was almost entirely um like Russian and like Ukraine were saying, you know, we're not doing anything. We're not, we're not antagonizing. We're just, you know, we're just responding. Whereas, you know, this time they, it definitely seems to be like they, they're saying one thing, saying that nothing's happening. But on the other hand, they're definitely quietly shipping a lot of equipment to the front. Um, 
I'm just trying to bring up like the latest uh, like OSC report now from yesterday, which of course would you know the way it works is it would have been details from the fifth, um, and again you know like they they spotted another uh, sixteen self-propelled howitzers at a, at a train station on the fourth of November, so just a few days ago, um, and you know it, it's definitely I don't I don't remember. You know, you know, back in March and April, there was a lot, a lot of movement. Um, but again, it was almost identical to 2020. The the amount of movement, you know, coming towards winter here, it seems quite unusual. Um, and you know, it seems like a lot of um, journalists and analysts who who follow Ukraine, who are normally quite reserved in, you know, they're not they're not normally alarmist to saying, you know, things definitely seem a little bit more concerning regarding you know the the situation at the moment and you know possibly looking at maybe a winter offensive from one side or the other or both um which we, we you know we haven't seen you know the front lines haven't changed um since 2014 2015 really since the uh the minsk agreements you know it's it's been a frozen conflict as such of course they've been fighting they've been there's been soldiers dying but there's been no real attempt to take any new territory um until um you know, a few weeks back, well, you know, like towards the tail end of October when Ukraine took a village in like the southern part of um, of the Donbass region, which, you know, Ukraine denies, but, you know, there's, there's, there's videos and photos showing them in the village, you know, it, it's it's confirmed they moved up and took the village. But I think they took it without much resistance. I don't think um, there was any militia in the village defending it. It was kind of in a, in almost a no man's land. Um, but you know they did cross a river allegedly with like um, pontoon bridges, and have set up a you know a defensive line in this village, which you know crossing a river itself is significant enough. Um, so it will definitely be interesting how things uh, change in the, in the coming weeks and you know and and, and months throughout the winter. Yeah, absolutely. And again, winter warfare in <laughs> winter warfare in uh, Russia always fun, right? No, exactly. And I think um, traditionally that's why there hasn't been much fighting because I think the weather um, can fluctuate between you know freezing temperatures and plus temperatures, which is you know creates a lot of mud, um, which is you know awful for mechanized combat, which. You know, Russia and ex-Soviet states, they absolutely love, you know, their mechanized infantry. Um, so, yeah, that's why there hasn't been a lot of movement. So, you know, if there is potentially an offensive over the winter, it would definitely be uh, unusual, to say the least. Yeah, and I guess at this point, we basically just have to wait and see. No, definitely. Like I said, it's there's been so many years in which the fighting has picked up to, like, concern, and they're, like, much, much higher than, um, than it is now. You know, like, 2018 in particular, it was very, very heavy fighting. And and you know nothing happened. And, you know the kind of expected offensive from either side never came, and they both just kind of backed down. Um, so you know it, it could just be another another you know lots of smoke, no fire. But everyone's got short memories, and they, you know, everyone always seems to think that this time it's going to happen. But you know it never does. We can always hope that it doesn't happen. But um, speaking to you know someone living in internet city. Um, you know, he told me that the the fighting definitely seems worse, but only in areas in which fighting was already bad. You know, it, it doesn't seem to be spreading and and, and escalating everywhere. Um, but where the fighting was already pretty heavy, he seems to think it's it's getting even heavier there. Now we should probably move on to our last major topic, which is uh, Ethiopia. Um, good lord, where to start with Ethiopia? I don't think we've actually ever really talked at length on the podcast about it, have we? I don't think I don't think we've touched on it at all since it started. I, I don't think we've ever ever had the chance to really properly contextualize what's happened there. Hmm. Um and I think I might as well take a sort of a bit of a bit of time to uh, actually sort of explain what's happening. So um before twenty nineteen, um the country was pretty much uh controlled by what's called ethnic federalism. Um which is uh, where, you know, ethnic groups sort of have their own representation in the government. Um, so uh, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, um, who won a Nobel Peace Prize for um, what he did, which was uh, effectively um, 
attempted to uh, overturn the sort of ethnic federal system um, and created something called the Ethiopians People Revol- Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, um, which uh, was the smerged coalition of a bunch of different ethnic parties. Um, now, the other party in the equation is the Tigray People's uh, Liberation Front, which before 2019 um, had a lot of control over the country. Um, uh, they effectively dominated the Ethiopian politics. Um, they were also considered a fairly repressive regime, um, and they refused to join uh, the the new uh, Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, uh, controlled by the Prime Minister uh, Ahmed. Um, and they allege that he was, or the prime minister was, a um, an illegitimate ruler. Um, this was because uh, the prime minister suspended the elections, which had been scheduled um, uh, for August of last year because um, uh, because of COVID. Um, and uh, the uh, TPLF, the Tigray uh, party, um, decided to then hold elections in Tigray in September of 2020. Um, against the uh, the orders of the federal government, um, who then proceeded to declare the election as illegal. Um, uh, after uh, we uh, saw basically um, uh, uh, sort of things heat up in November of 2020, sort of war broke out. Uh, Ethiopian forces invaded Tigray with the help of um, Eritrea. A um, lot of bombing. Uh, war crimes have been committed by all sides um, in this fight. Um, and then by the end of that November of 2020, last year, um, the uh, uh, main Ethiopian forces had won against Tigray. Um, they had cleared out the capital of all Tigrayan forces. Um, but over this last summer, um, apparently they did not... Uh, accurately uh or um get rid of all the uh, tigray forces um who have reconstituted fairly quickly um and are now uh pushing towards the uh, capital of ethiopia with what seems to be an amazing number of fighters um much more than anyone really thought they had and they're putting together a uh incredibly competent offensive um they've made huge progress in the last month and are now closing in fairly quickly on the capital. That sort of leads us into the events of the last week where um, uh, we've seen multiple countries recall diplomats, um, try to evacu- start evacuating their citizens, urging their citizens to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is sort of where we stand right now. Yeah, and it's worth saying that so the Tigrodan forces now hold roughly one third of the geographical area of the country. Um, which is obviously a huge uh, swathe of territory, um, and, and as technical says, they are f- a matter of days, really, if they were to push away from the capital city. Um, we've seen the U.S. Um, fairly quickly after this was kind of announced, after a state of emergency was declared, the U.S. Uh, began advising its citizens to leave and and, and began evacuating non-essential diplomatic personnel Um, very much sort of the same initial process that we saw with uh, the crisis in Afghanistan not that long ago um, and and, and in other situations in in, in the past as well yeah and I think I might need to contextualize this because we had more news today um, come out from Ethiopia map, who I absolutely uh, recommend um, uh, following. It's run by Woofers. Um, I'm actually gonna. It's it's so important. I'm gonna actually link to it um, down below in the description. Um, but they're really good at sort of confirming what's actually sort of happening and putting it again on a map. But um, uh, they've confirmed or somewhat confirmed today that um, the Tigrayan forces have won a couple of major engagements, um, destroying uh, four Ethiopian uh, nationalist uh, divisions, um, and and uh, making major major progress today down uh, two main um, lines of uh, uh, of advance. So again, we're just continuing to see them make uh, more and more progress um, against uh, the Ethiopian forces. It's just been. An absolutely unbelievable turnaround, though, hasn't it? Like I'm guilty myself of it. I, you know, I've been keeping an eye on it, but 
I, I don't really have a lot of information on what's going on, so I've been kind of refraining from commenting, which you know a lot of people should should do, but don't. Yeah. Um, but like the, the last, like I can just remember, you know, the um, you know, Ethiopian forces took the uh, you know they, they took the Tigrayan capital. I was like, oh, okay, that's that. that that's that's the war over. And I kind of blinked, and then <laughs> they were outside the capital, and I was like, well, what, what happened there? Like, what happened? Well, they between, they, like, they started came the out of nowhere. Yeah, it was it was absolutely like I I can't even think of anything to compare it to like such like literally being on the brink of defeat to the brink of of victory and well I'm I'm getting a a bit of deja vu to certain other events that happened this summer, um, but no this has definitely been um fairly unique. Yeah no definitely it's um definitely gonna be one for the history books. Yeah and and again um. I think the main issue is that we've seen both Ethiopian government forces and Tigrayan forces commit um, fairly severe war crimes um, against civilians. And again, as sort of the fighting ramps up, we've seen more um, of these crimes committed, which is just definitely a major... Uh, it, it's not a good thing to see. Um and and my fear is, and I think I've tweeted about this recently, is um, as more pressure is put on the Ethiopian government, they may take um, more and more desperate steps to uh, uh, repel uh, Tigran forces, um, and and that may involve um, a more indiscriminate use of their air power um, in order to to target their formations, and that just you know, as we saw last summer, that or last uh, fall and winter. Um, that resulted in a lot of civilian casualties. Um, again, like I said, I'm not massively uh, informed on, on the whole conflict, but do, does the, do the Tigrayan forces have an air force of their own, or are they purely uh, infantry, like land-based? Infantry only. They're purely land-based. They've, they've, they've taken out some Ethiopian, Ethiopian air yeah, assets during the course of the conflict. Yeah. I remember having, they, they, they had a pretty... Um, like a pretty decent like air defense system, right? From what I remember, they've shot down a few helicopters, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think there was uh, a couple of turboprop uh, attack aircraft that were shot down as well at one point. Like yeah, most of what I've seen is there that is man pads. Yeah. So um, to wrap up um, the news stories from the last couple of weeks since our previous episode. Um, Iran has finally agreed to a date to begin uh, the continuation of, of uh, nuclear agreement talks in Vienna. Um, the talks are now set to begin at the end of November, um, which obviously does not leave an awful lot of time before uh, the sort of informal Israeli deadline that has been given, um, at which point they will consider Iran to be a t too serious a threat to uh, not act any longer. Um, I think it's fair to say I, I've certainly voiced my opinion on it on Twitter. Um, this is the, the timing that Iran has chosen and the way that they've been talking about it. I, I think it's fair to say we know stalling for time again. Um, I, th I think you guys would probably agree with me on that. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they have any serious intentions to you know, have yeah, talks also... or... Spokesperson of uh, the uh, the Iranian atomic uh, agency confirmed that they have twenty five kilograms of sixty uh, percent enriched uranium, and uh, they announced that the, the guy, the Behrouz Kamal Wendy, added that this uh, this stockpile is only for the nuclear capable uh, countries. So, uh, I think the Iranian regime doesn't have any intentions for making another deal. They're just heading towards something that, that most of the walls are afraid of. And so, it also could be a bargaining chip, but I think you will know that by the end of the November. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not hugely familiar with um, the actual sort of physics behind uh, creating the, the enriched uranium for nuclear weapons but what I have been told is that the the 60% enriched um, sort of milestone is, is quite a massive deal because apparently it's a very very easy 
process from there for it to then become weapons grade uh, material. Um, so obviously that is something that will be weighing very heavily on uh, on the minds of the Israeli government um, as these talks get underway and, and, and obviously we'll have to wait and see whether anything comes of the talks um, although I, I think it's fair to say we are all very very sceptical um, and, and as we discussed last time when we uh, on last episode when we spoke to uh, Israel Radar um, there is kind of an expectation that if the talks go nowhere um, we could well see Israeli strikes on Iran um, sometime in the new year. Yeah, that could be quite possible because uh, as far as I know, uh, there are lots of uh, maneuvers and trainings on Israeli Air Force, uh, especially over the Eastern Mediterranean. So um, this was also announced by uh, uh, Rav Aviv Kovay, who is uh, the chief of staff of Israeli army. Uh, they are training pretty much serious and uh, uh, actually it's a very uh, tight training program. So they might be getting ready for, for something uh, serious and offensive against the Iranian regime's uh, nuclear facilities if the talks were not quite effective. Uh, on another topic, um, the UK Carrier Strike Group uh, is continuing its journey home. Um, this week it's arrived in Oman, uh, where it will be carrying out a couple of days of uh, exercises uh, in conjunction with um, an, a sort of joint air and ground exercise that's going on with British forces in Oman um, this week. Um, once that's completed, uh, the carrier strike group is expected to return through the Suez Canal back into the Mediterranean to begin the last leg of the journey home um, and is currently still due to arrive back in the UK uh, just in time for Christmas. Russia has announced that its new single-engine fifth-generation fast jet, the Su-75 Checkmate, uh, will be going into production. Um, they are hoping to produce somewhere in the region of 300 of the type um, and it's reportedly already being offered to several countries uh, in an export form. Um, the Checkmate is, generally speaking, supposed to be their answer to the F-35 um, in much the same way that the uh, Su-57 Felon was supposed to be their response to the F-22 Raptor. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, how this aircraft performs because at, at the moment all we've seen of it obviously is a mock-up. Um, the first flight of the type is not actually due to take place until 2023. Um, but it could prove to be quite an interesting uh, change to the uh, the fast jet market um, given that the estimated cost per unit will be a third of that uh, price that you pay for the F-35s. And then last but by no means least, um, Morocco and Algeria um, have had a bit of a, well, not an unusual falling out, but a fairly substantial uh, incident has occurred in the last week. Um, Algeria reported earlier this week that three civilians, uh, I believe who were part of an aid convoy, um, were killed in a Moroccan airstrike. Um, I don't know if you guys want to sort of expand on that a little bit. Yeah, well, they, um, yeah, they, they, like uh, technical said earlier that um, they, they, they fall out every every other week, don't they? Morocco and Algeria, um, like they, you know, the the difference this time is you know people have died. Um, it's it seemed like the tensions were kind of building up and building up, you know, in, in the weeks prior to it, um, I think like Algeria had completely cut diplomatic ties with Morocco and then shut their embassy. Um, and then in the days just before the strike, they had banned the, um, the not the sale as such, but like the, the transfer of oil to Spain through Morocco. So they, they, they shut off that pipeline, which again was quite another big step. Um, and then, you know, 24 to 48 hours later, three Algerian citizens were dead as a result of an Algerian airstrike, um, which presumably they thought they were uh, targeting a, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, is it Polo, Polisario, Polisario um, convoy in Western Sahara? Um, but, you know, Morocco haven't 
uh, acknowledged it. I believe the, the king had a speech yesterday in which he um, didn't didn't acknowledge the incident at all. Algeria have been uh, furious about it over the last couple of days, especially as the airstrike took place on the Revolution Day or Day of Revolution, whichever way around it is. Um, so it seems that you know tensions are the highest between the two than they have been for a long, long time. Um, and it seems most people are expecting some kind of tit-for-tat response from Algeria, whether that's like a, a drone strike or an airstrike or, or or whatever it could possibly be. It, it seems to be expected, um, which obviously has the danger of spiraling and, and leading to a larger conflict. Um, you know, at the moment that hasn't happened, and you know we all hope that doesn't happen. But it's definitely a, uh, a new area of the world, I suppose, that we could see um, conflict and one that you know they haven't been to war since I believe it was the sixties. I don't know if anyone knows the exact year, but I believe it was the nineteen sixties. They last had an armed conflict, at least. Mm. Um, so it'll definitely be interesting to keep an eye on it. Yeah, and with that, uh, I think we're going to wrap up uh, this week's episode. Um, we'd like to thank all of you who tune in, uh, who download the episodes, who listen on Spotify and YouTube and elsewhere. Um, shortly after the last episode that we released, um, we surpassed the 100,000 total listens uh, milestone, which I think it's fair to say none of us ever really expected um, to sort of achieve that kind of uh, support. Um, as of this evening, uh, as of the time of recording, um, we are just shy of 125,000 uh, total downloads and listens um, from you guys, and, and we are hugely grateful for that support um, and looking forward to uh, continuing uh, episodes into the future. Um, technical will be putting all of the uh, links uh, to various uh, images and various accounts that we've sort of referenced this evening. Um, in the video description uh, and I'll add those to the uh, download files as well um, and so with that thank you very much for listening um, and we will see you in the next episode 